0: The following message is brought to you by the Teaching and Preaching Ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. If you take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter number 3, we are currently in a Bible study that, we're in, that we've been calling uh, metamorphosis. And uh, we've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of the Bible called Colossians, or the Letter to the Colossians. And so basically around here, we just kind of go verse-by-verse through the Scriptures, uh, taking these Bible studies in verse-by-verse. And so the reason we've called it Metamorphosis is because in chapters number 1 and chapters number 2 of the book of Colossians, really speaks to us being rooted in Christ. That is, who is Christ for us? Chapters 1, chapters number 2 as you transfer into chapters number 3 and chapters number 4 of colossians it begins to begins to show you what it looks like when a christian is truly rooted in christ how does that express itself in the individual Christian's life. What does it look like in our lifestyle? What does it looks like in different arenas of our life? And so that's what this series is all about. It's really just going through the this idea of how does Christ want to live out his life through our bodies, all right? And that's kind of what we're going to unpack a little bit today. And so I hope you'll prepare your heart and minds for that. I'm going to have a word of prayer. And then when I'm done praying, Pastor Nick will come and give us our Bible study this morning. Shall we pray?
1: Thanks for coming out this morning. How many of you, if you're like me, you've ever read something in the Bible and you thought to yourself, okay, that was in the Bible. I have no clue what to do with that, but there it is. Um, Every year I try to uh, make it my goal to read through the entire Bible. And every year when I get into the book of Exodus, there's this really interesting command that just baffles me. Every time it's found in Exodus 23, 19. It says, you must not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And every time I read that, I think, what in the world, was that a thing? Did people boil baby goats of their mother's milk? Like, that command is so specific. It says you can't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, what about an old goat? Can I boil that in its mother's milk? It says you can't boil it in its mother's milk. Well, can I boil a young goat in its auntie's milk? Like, why is this so specific? Why is this a thing? Not only was it a thing, I think it was a problem. Because that command gets repeated several times throughout the Old Testament, like people were really doing this. So every time I read it, I just kinda chuckle and scratch my head. I'm not sure how that applies to us today, but I'm pretty sure it means goat yoga is off limits, all right? So if any of you are involved in goat yoga, I'm just kidding, it has nothing to do with that. Uh, Sometimes we read stuff in the Bible and it just kinda makes us scratch our heads, the differences in society and and how that all plays out. Uh, But other times, on maybe a more serious note, We'll read something in scripture and we instantly think, wow, okay, that's in the Bible. I didn't know that. And we struggle with it. If we're to be honest, we don't even really like it. We maybe think to ourselves, man, no wonder people think, no wonder people struggle with believing the Bible. Look look, look at what it says. And there's two different ways I think people typically respond to these difficult type passages. The first way Uh, is uh, people they'll they'll read a passage like that and instead of doing the hard work of trying to understand it historically try to understand what the bible is actually saying they'll take a verse out of context and they'll wave that as their banner and say see this is why we don't believe the bible this is why the bible is no longer relevant for society this is why it should just be put on the shelf of the history books but it shouldn't be our final authority we shouldn't really take it seriously because look at what it says but we as good Christians, we know we're not supposed to do that, right? We know the Bible's supposed to be our final authority in, it, in everything that we do and what we believe, uh, but we don't really have an answer for those critics. And so sometimes what we do is we come across those difficult passages and instead of doing the hard work to understand the historical context, what the Bible's actually saying, looking at it in the context of what's going on, we just kind of ignore it. We, we, we pretend like those hard verses aren't there, don't we? And when the critic stands up and says, look at what the Bible says, we're like, no, it doesn't say that. But we don't actually know deep down what it says because we ignore those difficult passages. Kind of like the ostrichs, we stick our head in the sand and pretend like it's not there. Well, instead of doing that, just pretending like it's not there or using it as an excuse not to believe the Bible, what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to dive right into one of those difficult passages. And I hope as we give the historical background and the context and look at what the Apostle Paul is actually saying, It'll actually provide some illumination. And I think as we read our text this morning, right off the bat, we're going to understand while this passage could be misunderstood and is often used as a reason why we shouldn't believe the Bible. If you're physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand. We're going to read Colossians chapter number three. We're going to start in verse 22 and work our way to chapter four, verse one. You guys ready? Bible says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Now, right away, that should make you feel a little like, what? Like there should be a little bit of, ah, ugh. And you can understand why maybe somebody would take this verse and say, this is why we shouldn't believe in Christianity. But let's go on. Slaves obey your human masters and everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Verse 24, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. You may be seated. In this uh, particular portion of scripture, if you have a Bible uh, that breaks it up by paragraph like mine does, you see it doesn't break it up by verse, it breaks it up by paragraph, In this paragraph, Paul is talking about how a Christian home should work. What does it look like when Jesus is predominant and preeminent and he's the main focus of our home? And so, as we're reading that, it's perplexing to say the least uh, to see Paul dealing with slavery. I mean, no wonder people think the Bible's outdated. It's very easy and people often do take that one verse out of context and see. see, look, the Bible condones slavery This passage is a good example of how our Western thinking can actually hinder how we read and interpret the Bible. We need to be careful that we don't allow our emotions or even our worldview to keep us from seeing what the Bible is actually saying, because that's what happens a lot. We read that first part of that verse, and we instantly are like, no, and understandably so. But what is Paul actually saying here? You see, when most of us read this verse, The first thing that comes to our mind is the horrors and the unspeakable sin that happened uh, through the transatlantic slave trade in the European colonies and the American slave trade in the southern United States. That's where our mind instantly goes. This slavery was race-based, it was oppressive, lifelong, and it was often based on kidnapping. It was a horror which had cruel repercussions that have lasted to this day the brutal inhumanity of that sinful system was compounded by the fact that it was bound to a deep-rooted racism. In fact, in the British Empire, even in our own country, it would have been unthinkable to see a black man with a white slave. Like that just wouldn't have, you wouldn't have seen that. That would have been completely unthinkable. However, that was not the case in the Roman Empire. In fact, that would have been normal in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, in ancient Rome, the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing... There were many different types of slaveries. There was solid evidence that much of it was very harsh and brutal, but there was also plenty of evidence that many slaves were not treated like those in our own country would have been, but they lived normal lives, were paid the going wage, uh, they could live wherever they wanted to, they just weren't allowed to quit or change employers, and were in slavery on average of only 10 years. Prisoners of war would often become slaves. Uh, criminals would often be sentenced to being galley slaves for their crimes and men could be uh, sentenced uh, for their crimes into slavery a person could become a slave for a set period in time in order to work off debts in the ancient world there was no such thing as bankruptcy so if you were in more debt than you could pay and you didn't know what to do it would not have been uncommon for a person in that much debt to sell themselves into slavery for a certain period of time so they could work that debt off Often it was called indentured servitude. It wasn't permanent. In fact, they would do it willingly to pay off the debt. Oftentimes, uh, slaves weren't even on the bottom. In the ancient Roman world, they weren't on the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. In fact, the people that were on the bottom, they had no consistent work, no way to provide for their families, no steady income. They would often sell themselves into slavery so they could have consistent work, so they can get an education and provide for their families. To our surprise, in the ancient Roman world, and in antiquity, in times of old, slaves could actually own slaves. And many slaves were doctors, professors, administrators, and civil servants. In fact, in the ancient Near East, education of slaves was seen as a smart business practice. So slaves were educated by their masters, sometimes to the point where they were actually smarter than their masters were. There's two biblical examples of this. The first one is Joseph. Joseph was a man who was sold into slavery, and he excelled so much at his work, he was so smart that his master said, hey, let's see him rise all the way to the top, and he became the second most powerful person in the country of Egypt, the world's superpower at the time. Now, no doubt God's hand was on him, but God allowed him to have those skills and abilities so that he could climb the corporate ladder, so to speak. We also see this with the biblical character Daniel. Daniel was a prisoner of war. He was a slave in Babylon, and he was so gifted and so skilled at what he did that he became second in power to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. At that time, that was the world's superpower. So in ancient times, it was not uncommon for owners of slaves to say, hey, let's see how far this person could go. Let's let them climb all the way to, a, all the, way to the top. There was this acknowledgement among their owners that this is a gifted individual. Slavery was an accepted institution in all cultures and societies of the ancient world, and it always had been. Now, none of that is to say that slavery in biblical times was a positive thing. Far from it. It needs to be condemned, not condoned. What we're doing is just giving ourselves some historical context for the ancient world. It was just, unfortunately, but it was a matter of fact. And it was only within Christianity did the idea eventually arise that slavery was an abominable institution that needed to be abolished. Why did that arise out of the Christian's belief? Mainly because of the implications of the gospel laid out by the Apostle Paul, even in our own text this morning. As we're gonna see in our text, and as you read the New Testament, specifically the book of Philemon, Paul was determined to subvert slavery. He was determined to undermine it and hollow it out from the inside. Most scholars would tell us that the Colossian church met in the home of a man named Philemon. It's the person the New Testament book was written after. Uh, When Paul addresses Philemon in his book, he says, to my dearly beloved Philemon and the church that meets in your home. Most scholars would tell us that church was the church at Colossae, the Colossians. So this church met in his home. The entire book of the Bible was named after him and it was addressed to this church. Philemon himself had several slaves in his household. Now I want you to imagine the surprise to this Colossian church. They were meeting, they were getting ready to lead, read the letter of Colossians. They're getting ready to read the letter of Philemon. Both of these letters were taken to this church at the same time. They're getting ready to lead these letters. The whole church has gathered. Masters and slaves, they're all there together in this big room, and the Apostle Paul all of a sudden begins directly addressing the slaves. And he says that, hey, you guys aren't serving man, you're actually serving God. I wonder if Philemon would have been, well, well, well hold up, <laughs> I kind of thought they were serving me. And Paul's like, no, they don't serve you. They serve God. But then he goes on to say, not only are they serving God, They have a reward that they can look forward to. You guys, your work is going to be blessed. You're serving God, and he sees your work. He sees your labor, and he's going to reward you with inheritance and eternal life. Then he goes on to say that if you're treated poorly, you can expect justice from God because God don't play favorites. I'm sure the masters were like, whoa, what's going on here? Like You see how Paul is actually subverting this thing of slavery. There were many Roman philosophers who would have hated what Paul was saying because in that Roman culture, yes, they were allowed to thrive, but they were still viewed as property. They assumed that slaves were tools and how you treated them had no ethical bearing. And Paul flat out says, no, I am rejecting that. God is watching out for them. And if you treat them poorly, watch out. God does not play favorites. Then Paul is at his most subversive When he addresses the owners in chapter 4, verse 1, he tells them to do what is right and do what is fair because, hey, pal, you also have a master in heaven. And like I just said, he doesn't play favorites. Paul would regularly tell Christian slave owners that their slaves were equal to them in the sight of God and had to be treated as brothers. In Galatians chapter 3, he writes that in Christ there's no slave or free. Again, all are equal. Doesn't matter how the world views different people, God says, in my eyes, you're all equal. And so Paul says, because God views us all as equal, we should treat everybody as equals. The case study in which he applies this gospel theology is again the book of Philemon. There Paul sends Onesimus. Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves who actually ran away. And while he was on the run, he, under the sovereignty of God, runs into the apostle Paul, who leads him to Jesus. Paul loves Onesimus so much that he wants him on his ministry team but he sends him back to Philemon and he tells Philemon, hey, look, Philemon, I know this slave ran away from you, but he's now your brother in Christ. You need to treat him like a brother. I want him on my ministry team. He actually tells Philemon, look, as an apostle, I could tell you what to do, Philemon, but this needs to be your choice. You need to treat him like a brother. And Onesimus was actually one of the people that brought the letter of Colossians back to this church. I can imagine what it would have been like for the other masters in the church to be like, wait a minute, this guy ran away. And now Apostle Paul is saying, treat him like a brother, treat him like a son, honor him. You see how Paul is literally subverting the entire system in Colossians 4.9. He says he is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. Paul, over and over and over again, works at helping us understand that in Christ, we are all equal. This, of course, undermined and weakened the institution Of slavery among Christians very quickly, until it was eventually discarded. Later, the institution of race-based kidnapping fueled slavery in the New World was so out of step, it was so out of accord with the biblical principles that it was Christians who led the fight to have slavery abolished. Despite how complicated the subject is, and despite the emotions that instantly rise up when we first begin to read this passage. We have to be careful in not allowing our emotions to push us away from what the Apostle Paul is actually doing. While many critics will say, look, the Bible condones slavery, the Apostle Paul is actually doing just the opposite. And he's literally hollowing it out, helping us understand that in Christ, we are all equal. It was this biblical theology that actually destroyed the coercive heart of the institution of slavery. And it was Christians who actually led the fight against it. So how does this passage then apply to us? with that historical context given, what, what, what do we do with it, right? What do we do with this in 2019? Well, if this is how Paul is telling slaves and masters there to go about their work, how much more should this be true of us as employees and employers today? How does the gospel transform us? Those, those, those uh, principles of how we're rooted in Christ, like we saw in Colossians 1 and 2, how does that inform and transform the way we go about working. Well, I want to bring us to our theme this morning that we're going to pull out of this passage this morning. And our theme is the way we work is one of the most dominant ways we worship God. And I I say one of the most dominant ways to worship God. When we think about worship, what do we typically think of? Singing, right? What we do here on Sunday morning for this one hour. But the truth is we work maybe our nine to five jobs Whatever our work is, we work a lot more than we do sit in this room. And so we need to begin to view work as one of the most dominant ways that we get to worship God. So let's look at how this plays out. As we begin this morning, I think it's important that we lay a biblical groundwork for what work actually is, which leads us to our first thought this morning the theology of work. The theology of work. Why does work exist in the first place? To make ends meet? To climb the corporate ladder, to fill up our bank accounts? Why does work exist? When did human beings actually start working? Well, to answer this biblically, we need to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. And in verse number 15, the Bible says, The Lord God took the man, Adam, he had just created man, and placed him in the Garden of Eden to, what's that next word? Work it. And to watch over it. Right in the very beginning of creation, we see that God gave man meaningful work to do. And just so we all understand, Adam didn't need anything. He had all the provision he needed. He had an unhindered relationship with God. He had this beautiful garden that provided everything he could have had. And yet, God still gave Adam, God still gave us as mankind, meaningful work to do. This was before sin had entered into the picture. As, be, as a being created in the image of God, Adam, like God, was to be a worker. Without the curse of sin, work was an undiluted blessing. The verb translated here, work, actually means to serve. You could literally say God placed Adam in the garden to serve it and to watch over it. This verb, uh, the second part of Adam's job was to watch the garden. This verb is used elsewhere in scripture to refer to the action of God towards his people. So get this. When we are working, we are serving, and we are also acting as God's ambassadors, bringing his plan to fruition. We are co-laborers with God. We are God's representatives working to bring his plan to fruition, and we're doing the very thing that he himself does. Because we're created in the image of God, we want to be like God, and so what do we do? We work, and we work well. But oftentimes, this isn't how we view work, is it? As society, and I think this definitely plays out in the church, we're tempted to view work like this necessary evil, right? Like, I got to go to work so I can pay the bills and make ends meet. But man, if I had a rich uncle who passed away and I became independently wealthy, I would never work again. Let's be honest, that would be a lot of us, right? Like, man, I never had to work a day in my life. Here's the truth. We weren't created to make ends meet. We weren't created to work to make ends meet. God gave us work so that we could be like Him, so that we could be co-laborers together with Him, so that we could work at bringing His plan to fruition. If work is viewed as a result of sin, or if it's viewed as a necessary evil, the goal then becomes to create a world where we can survive and thrive without work. However, work is not simply about providing food, clothing, or shelter. It's so much more than that. It's not a result of the curse of sin work is an inseparable part of god's original design for creation right from the very beginning god has created us to do work in his commentary on genesis ken matthew says life without work would not be worthy of human beings not working is below who we are as humans it's below what god has created us to do as image bearers of god we work because our creator god works we want to be like our heavenly father so we work God has given us the raw elements of this world. He has given us creativity. He has given us knowledge. He has given us passion. He's given us desire and drive so that we can make the world a better place, so that we can cultivate it, so that we can see mankind flourish, so that we can serve him by serving our fellow man. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work, Tim Keller says, In the beginning, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. From the very beginning of creation, God has designed us and given us this amazing gift called work. Work has dignity because it's something that God does, and because we do it in God's place as his ambassadors. This is why a job well done is so satisfying. I mean, think about it. When you, when, you, when you do a good job, but not in a prideful way, you know you did a good job, but you're just aware, man, that went really well. That all came together just like the way we wanted it to. That, work, that job was done well. That brings a level of satisfaction, doesn't it? I mean, dads, it's that feeling you get after you mow the lawn And it looks pristine. There's not a blade of grass out of place, and you got the nice patterns, and it looks amazing. That feeling of satisfaction that you get, God put that in our lives because work is a blessing. When we do work and we do work well, it becomes this God given source of joy and this God given source of life because we are fulfilling the purpose and assignment that God has given us. This is also why, when we get lazy, we get uneasy. And we get restless. We think, oh, if I, if, I, if I blow off work, maybe I could get some rest. Maybe I could get some R&R. But if we're to be honest, it often does the opposite, doesn't it? We get restless. Because we, we, we know in the deepest part of who we are, we're not doing what we were created to do. God has created us to work, and we work, and when we work well, it brings authentic joy to our life. So we've seen a theology of work. This is why it exists. This is what we were created to do as image bearers of God. But then I want to notice also the practice of work. As we work through our text this morning, Paul lays out how we as believers are supposed to work. The idea that Paul is fleshing out here in these verses is that there is to be this genuine sincerity in the way we work. We don't work only when the boss is looking. We recognize that in the grand scheme of things, we are working for the Lord. And so because we're working for the Lord and not for man, we do our best. When we realize I've got all the acceptance and all the approval that I need from God, I don't have to work to get man's approval anymore. I don't have to work to get my boss's approval. I don't have to work to get the boy. I don't have to work to get the pat on the back. I have all that I need for that from Christ. And because I have all that acceptance and love from Christ, I am free to do the best job I can, even if nobody ever sees me or if nobody ever knows. And Paul says in our passage that such work will be rewarded, verse 24. Working wholeheartedly means giving our work everything that we have, working with everything that is within us. I can remember a while back, I was watching a baseball game. And the batter, was, I, I believe if I remember correctly, there was already two outs. There was one batter up. If he, if, he, if, he, if he strikes out or if he doesn't get on base, like he's out, right? And so he gets up to bat, he hits a line drive, it goes right past the first baseman. The first baseman takes off running backwards, goes to get the ball. The batter is just running for everything that he has, trying to get to the base. He's getting ready to slide into the base. And as the baseman gets the ball, he turns around, he sees how close it's going to be. He just kind of walked back to the base and didn't even try to get the guy out. And At that moment, I was like, dude, run! <laughs> like, it's going to be close, but don't just give this half-hearted attempt. Give it everything that we have. As Christians, the Apostle Paul says, we're supposed to give our work everything that we have. And sometimes when our work is hard, what do we do? We just try to figure out a way out of it, don't we? Or we just give this half-hearted attempt but the Apostle Paul is saying, no, we're to work wholeheartedly for the Lord. We're to give it everything that we have. Leave nothing. Give it all. Put it all out on the table. Leave nothing back. Hold nothing back. Give God everything. Give your work everything that you have. That's what Paul said. need He wants us to work wholeheartedly for the Lord. We're not doing this for man. We can give our work everything that we have. Because of our theology of work, we don't have to work halfway. Because this is something God has given us to do. This is God's assignment for our lives, and it has dignity, and it has worth, and it has purpose. We give it our everything. Think about it. God doesn't make junk. A biblical understanding of work energizes our desire to create value from the resources that are available to us. Realizing that God doesn't do anything halfway, we don't want to do anything halfway, and as co-laborers together with God, that energizes me to do the best job I can to take the resources He has made available to me and join Him in making the world a better place, join Him as a co-cultivator of His work. This helps us enter into our work with this relentless spirit of creativity and drive and desire to do the best job that we can. That's what Ecclesiastes 19.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with your strength. Do it with everything that you have. The fact that a work is a calling from God to serve others should energize us and give us a drive and a zeal to do our very best. And this doesn't just apply to our nine-to-five jobs. This applies to every work that we find that God gives us in our life. This applies to the way I work as a dad. And yes, there are moments when I'm exhausted. Yes, there's moments when it feels thankless. It's hard to see God's big grand scheme of things when all I can smell is a nasty diaper. But because this is something that God has given me to do, because God has called me to co-labor with him in raising up a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I often fail at this. But because God has given me that privilege of raising a disciple of him, working together with God, I can enter into the work of fatherhood with strength and with energy and with zeal, even when all I would rather do is take a nap. And sometimes, full disclosure, I take the nap, not going to lie. Pray for me. But because this is something God has called me to do and I get to co-labor with him, I can do the hard work of being a dad. I can do the hard work of being a husband. I can do the hard work of being a homeowner. Whatever the work that God has called us to do, single moms, I know sometimes that is such a thankless job. But God has called you to help him raise a human child to love God. Think about the worth and the dignity there is in what you are doing. You may say, Pastor Nick, I'm just a garbage guy let me tell you, I'm very thankful for my garbage guy, all right? We think Fresno smells funny now. Imagine how it would smell if there was no garbage guy. Your work has worth. We're all very thankful for it. Regardless of what you're doing, whether it's your nine-to-five job or the work that you're doing at home, we need to view it as this is God's assignment for me. And Because this is God's assignment for me, there's no such thing as something too small. There's no such thing as meaningless work. Everything, whether we think it's big or small, it has value because it is something that God has given to us. One pastor said, everything we do from morning till night is to be done in a Godward way in reliance on his grace according to God's guidance for God's glory. Everything that we do, we are told to be wholehearted in our work. Not just to do the minimum to keep the boss off our back. No, give it everything that you have. Be fully engaged as a person, with your body, with your mind, with your heart, with your strength, with your energy, do the best job possible. We have been set free to work this type of way. If we view our work as serving Jesus, we're going to be freed from both underwork and overwork. Because we're set free to work in this type of way, we don't want to be lazy anymore because we're we're working with God. We're co-laborers with him. This is God's mission, so it's important. So I'm freed from being lazy because I realize the dignity and the worth and the value of what I'm doing, but I'm also freed from overworking. Because my identity is in Christ, and this is something that God has me to do, I don't have to work so hard to get the approval of my boss. And I say that, and he's sitting right here, folks. I don't have to work hard to get the approval of man, or to prove I'm something, or to make up for the fact that people thought I couldn't do it. I'm freed from all that, because I have all the love and acceptance of Christ. I'm freed from overwork. I'm freed from being lazy, and I'm freed from being a workaholic. We are free to work wholeheartedly in every arena of our life at home, and at our jobs. This is God's assignment. And that should fill me with this sense of wonder. Like the psalmist, he said, what is man that God is mindful of him? The thought that God would even think about us is amazing. The fact that God would want to do something with us is even more amazing. God wants to be a co-laborer with you. In whatever job you find yourself, in whatever arena of life you find yourself, God wants to enter into that work with you to make the world a better place to reflect his glory, to reflect his honor so that more people can experience his love. And because there's no favoritism with God, we don't compare assignments. I don't get all down on myself because like, well, I'm just a garbage guy. That guy over there, he's the CEO. God must love him more. No, there's no favoritism. God says, I view you all as equals. We all just have a different role and assignment from God. And because there's no favoritism, I don't come over here and be like, well, I'm a CEO. God must like me a whole lot more than that garbage guy. No, there's no favoritism with God. We are all equal. So because there's no favoritism, we don't compare assignments. We're just so thankful that God has given me an important part of his grand plan of redemption, his important part in making the world new. So no matter how seemingly big or small, important or insignificant, we view our work as an assignment for God, and we give ourselves wholeheartedly to it. In the movie Chariots of Fire, Eric Little's missionary father exhorts him, you can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. The truth is, it does not matter how small of a job we have. Our work is one of the most prominent ways we can worship God. It is to be a daily act of worship. Whether we're employer or employee, we all work for the same master, and that's King Jesus. So we've seen the theology of our work. This is what we were created for, this is what God made us to be from the very beginning of creation. We see the practice of work. Because of our theology of work, we give it everything that we have. And finally, let's look at the motivation for our work. Because of our theology and the practice, now our motivation changes. Work is no longer about trying to meet my physical needs. That's not the primary reason I work. I trust God is my provider, not my job, right? Because God is my provider, not my job. I don't work to uh, to make ends meet. Now granted, the way God provides for our needs is most often through our work, but if we ever lose our ability to work, we still depend on God because we're not depending on our job. And so if my primary motivation for working is not even myself to have a more comfortable life, my primary motivation is now to serve God and to serve others. One pastor said it this way, when I see God as my primary security, then my work becomes less about survival and more about faithfulness to him. If God ever reduces my ability to work, then I know that he's going to be the one who provides for me because ultimately he's my provider, not my job. Since God is ultimately our provider, our motivation and understanding of work changes. This honorable, meaningful labor is done as an act of worship, not to man but unto God. Such an understanding radically changes how we work, even when we don't have overseers, even when the boss isn't looking, even when there's not somebody standing over our shoulder telling us what to do. At home we work hard as we wash the dishes. At work we work, or at home we work hard as we vacuum the floor, or in my case, don't vacuum the floor. It changes how we work when nobody's watching. This changes everything, how we cook, how we take care of the house, how we cook the lawns, how we raise our kids. The motivation now is different for everything because we're we're working in light of our creator's character and command. We work for the audience of one. We work for the glory of God and the good of our fellow man. Whether it's picking up trash or running a company, whether we're launching a startup, whatever it is that we're doing, we are working to worship God. God. And the way we worship God is by working to serve a fellow man, to make our world a better place. Our daily work is a calling from God to serve other people. Working with this kind of mindset puts the glory of God on display for the people in our lives to see. You say, but Pastor Nick, you don't understand. I'm just a bus driver. Literally, you are taking children and transporting them safely so that they can get an education, so that they can grow up and be the world's next leaders. There is dignity and there is worth in everything that we do. And our motive is not to make ends meet. Our motive is to serve. Our motive is to serve others. And, uh, and God, I love what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or whether you drink, two of the most, we think, so insignificant things the most routine and mundane things. He says, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Everything, our work is to be done for the glory of God. If you're working to impress others, you're not working for the glory of God. We don't work anymore for the pat on the back. We don't work for the boy. We work so that others can see God. Pastor J.D. Creer, he often asked this question. He said, what are you doing with the resources and the strengths and the gifts God has given you? Are you using them to serve yourself or are you leveraging those things to serve others? Church, God has put us where he put us for a reason. It's not an accident that you're the garbage man. It's not an accident that you're a bus driver. It's not an accident that you lead your own law firm or that you're a CEO or that you design websites or that you mow lawns for a living. God has put you where he put you for a reason. Think, think through this with me. Who at your workplace needs Jesus? I know all of us we think about our workplace and we instantly think of like that annoying coworker that nobody wants to be around. Maybe God put you there cuz that annoying coworker needs to experience the love of the father. And he put you in that workplace because he is annoying and nobody else wants to be around him, but God loves that man. God loves that woman and he wants you to be the one that demonstrates God's love. Who in your workplace needs Jesus? How can you use your gifts and your skills to point people to Christ, to serve our fellow man, so that they will see your good work and glorify your Father, which is in heaven? The motivation of our work is no longer about us. It's not about climbing the corporate ladder. And sometimes that gets a bad rap, right? Because oftentimes when people try to climb the corporate ladder, they sacrifice their families, they sacrifice their walk with God, they do things without integrity, and so oftentimes climbing the corporate ladder gets a bad rap. But here's, here's, here's what I, I wish would happen more. I wish we'd have more Christians who would be like Joseph or be like Daniel and say, hey, I'm not gonna sacrifice my walk with God. I'm not gonna sacrifice my family or my church. I'm gonna do things with integrity, but I am gonna climb the corporate ladder. I am gonna get some drive and I am gonna try to work my way up, so to speak, so that I can use those resources, so that I can use that position, so that I can use that platform to serve more people so that more people can love God. Imagine how different our world would be Pulling off the mic. Imagine how different our world would be if, all the, if the majority of the CEOs in our country were believers. Like, what would that do for the culture of America? We need some people who say, yes, I will climb the ladder. I will use my influence and my gifts and my abilities and my skills as a leader so that God's mission can go forward in places where maybe it couldn't have before. We need some more modern-day Josephs who would just say, I'm going to flat-out excel. I'm going to do the best that I can so more people... Can be reached and experience who God is. In his book, Everybody Always, author and uh, lawyer, who's also a law professor, Bob Goff, tells a fantastic story that I think illustrates this point really well. In 2001, he went to Uganda to help some friends start up a nonprofit. While he was there, the country was still in the middle of a 25 year civil war led by Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army. And while Bob Goff was there, he began wondering if there was some small way he could help this country. He saw what the war was doing, ripping it apart, armed guards everywhere because no place was safe. And he began wondering, is there some way God can use me to help? Being a pretty good lawyer and knowing how God often uses our skills for his mission, he headed to the courthouse to see what he could find. He says in his book, when he got to the courthouse, it was just completely surrounded by armed guards. And he didn't even know I was going to get in. But he found the office that had the most armed guards around, and he says, there's probably somebody important in there, that's where I'm going to go. And he was able to finagle himself a meeting with the judge, who turned out to be the Chief Justice of Uganda's Supreme Court. This man had helped write Uganda's Constitution when they declared independence from Great Britain, and was actually the second most powerful man in the country. After several more trips to Uganda, the Chief Justice made the trip to the United States, and the two actually became good friends. While the Chief Justice was in America, he told Bob Goff about how the witch doctors in the country would on a regular basis kidnap and sacrifice children, small boys and girls. Parts of their bodies were believed to have magical powers, so these children would often be kidnapped, mutilated, and left in the jungle to die. Thousands in Uganda had been affected by these witch doctors, but no one had ever taken them on in the legal system. Partly because there was no victim that ever survived. But the other reality was that so many, including the judges, were literally gripped by fear of these witch doctors, completely terrified. They held the country in fear. So Bob Goff asked the Chief Justice if he would let him be a part of a trial against a witch doctor if they ever found a victim who lived. Chief Justice said he would. Fast forward in time a little bit. One day in Uganda, this eight-year-old boy was walking home from school. In the book, he's called Charlie. He was kidnapped by the head witch doctor in northern Uganda. His name was Kabi. Charlie was mutilated and left for dead. Only Charlie didn't die, and Kabi was arrested. For the first time in history, they had a survivor, and one of the leaders of the witch doctors could potentially stand trial for the crimes that they had done. Bob Goff says he immediately flew to Uganda and he met Charlie, who had identified Kabi in a lineup. Bob then went to the high chief court justice and asked if he would be willing to have this case against Kabi brought to trial. This could be Uganda's first case in which the death penalty was being sought against a witch doctor. This literally had the potential to change everything. Bob Goff said you could feel the weight and the gravity of the moment in the chief justice office that day. The entire country had been gripped by fear, and there was a sense that this might all change. So they found a judge who was courageous enough to take on the case. They had a courtroom and a date for the historic trial. When the date arrived, Cobby was brought into the courtroom, surrounded by armed guards and in chains. Little Charlie stood up and said, "'That is the man who tried to kill me,' and without flinching gave the details of what had happened to him. The trial took about a week to finish. Shortly after the verdict, guilty was given. The words of Kabi's conviction went out to 41 million people, and Kabi would never be seen or heard from again. It would never hurt anybody anymore. The courage of an eight-year-old boy, but also one man who was willing to use his skills, to use his job, literally changed the history of an entire nation. Because he said, God, I'm a lawyer, what can I do? And then he looked for ways to use the skills God had given him. Literally changed the course of an entire nation. Now here's the truth. You and I this week are probably not going to face off with witch doctors in the jungle of Uganda. But what if we started to ask ourselves how could I use my job, what I'm good at, to advance the kingdom of God? What if I would view my work the way Bob Goff did, as a way to rescue people out of darkness, as a way to show people the love of the Father? What if I viewed my work, not as this necessary thing that I gotta get through, but as the dominant way I can worship God with my life? What if we started asking God, God, how can you use my skills to help other people, and then actively look for ways that we can use our skills to help other people. How can you strategically use your work to further the mission of God? Guys, your work has meaning. I understand sometimes our work can feel so thankless. But let me tell you, no job is small in the kingdom of God. And when we do our work and we do it well, not only does God promise a reward, But God tells us, You're putting my glory on display for the entire world to see. You are helping other people experience the love of God. You are creating a world where people can see the experience, the love of God, and His desire for us, and how He is a God of order, and how He wants us as His creation to flourish. What if we viewed our work as worship? So here's our takeaway. Super simple. View your work as worship to God. Tomorrow morning when the alarm clock goes off, you're going to be presented with the choice. I could dread it, or I could say, I get to be God's ambassador today. And when we look at it as I get to be God's ambassadors, I think the Holy Spirit's going to give us eyes to see where he's working.